Hello, welcome to CPP Chat, the number one element in a zero-based array of podcasts, sorted chronologically, for C++ developers by C++ developers. Before we continue, as usual, I'd like my fellow host, John, to read this week's disclaimer. Thank you, Phil. Uh, CPP Chat Moving and Relocation Guide provides this website as a service. While the information contained within the website is periodically updated, no guarantee is given that the information provided in this website is correct, complete, and or up-to-date. The materials contained on this website are provided for general information purposes only and do not constitute legal or other professional advice on any subject matter. CPP Chat Moving and Relocation Guide does not accept any responsibility for any loss which may arrive from, a, from reliance on information contained on this site. So, thank you. We have, uh, we have a couple of guests that I'm excited about having. We've, we've had them both on before, and, and we know they're gonna be, it's going to be a great discussion. Um, Arthur O'Dwyer is the author of Mastering the C++17 STL, and he runs the Bay Area C++ User Group. Uh, Arthur is also presenting and giving a class at CppCon 2018. So, Arthur, how do you feel about the fact that that's only about five weeks away? Are you excited about that, or are you terrified about that? Uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be very different from last year. I'm giving the exact same class, but... Uh... You know, last year it was all new material. This year it's all one-year-old material. I'm going to have to review my slides and everything. It's, uh, it's going to be very oh, different. Wow. Even though it's the same material, it's going to be a very different experience, at least for me. Same experience for everyone else. Though. It's going to be great. Okay, that sounds fun. Um, so, Howard, uh, Howard Hinnett is, is kind of tough for me to introduce because if I told you how much I love and respect this guy, I'd embarrass us both. Howard currently works at Ripple, but has spent many years as a standard library maintainer and created libc++, the, the Clang standard library implementation from scratch. He also served as chair of the library working group on the standard committee for many years. So, Howard, um, are you, are, are, do you miss working on libc++, or are you glad it's no longer your problem? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I really enjoyed working on libc++ as a labor of love. There were some parts of it that I found frustrating to work on. Uh, I think ABI stability or ABI breakage was probably one of the things that I was worst at and most guilty of. And it's a problem <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to deal with anymore. Good luck, Marshall. <laughs> and he's doing a great job of it. Uh, Marshall's been uh, taking care of libc++ for four years now, over four years, and uh, doing a fantastic job. And I understand he's set to continue doing that for the foreseeable future. Yeah, um, there is a, a big announcement uh, concerning Marshall coming out, but I'm not going to, I'm just going to tease you with that. Uh, stay tuned. I, I don't think it's very far away, but a uh, big announcement from Marshall. Anyway. I'm not saying anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I think I think it was the last time you were on. I I asked you about Thomas Geffs and his top ten percent uh, log, where he he did this interesting shootout where he compared uh, partial sort with nth element followed by a full sort. And his the the get the takeaway you have from reading his blog is that you shouldn't use partial sort, and it's not because it's not because it's badly specified, but because the algorithm chosen to implement it is incorrect. Um, he kind of implies that if partial sort was implemented as an nth element followed by a full sort, it would be dramatically better. Um, so I hit you with that. But today I'm going to ask you a different question. Unless you want oh, to comment good. on that, I'm going to ask you a different question. 
you gave a you gave a, a, a talk a long time ago. Um, well, while you were still at Apple, I think, mm, uh, yes. talking about libc++ and the sorting algorithm that was used in libc++, and you described it as essentially uh, discovering and taking advantage of 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 subsequences of your data that's already sorted. And so, but, but I don't think in your talk you actually talked about what the algorithm was or how you were doing that. You just said, this is what we're doing now. So can you tip right. your hand a little bit and talk about what's going on there? Sure, absolutely. After all, the algorithm's open source, so anybody's welcome to, are able to go in there and, and take a look at it. And it's actually more than just detecting whether a subsequence is already sorted. It's detecting whether a it's actually detecting patterns. Like it'll also work very fast on a reverse sorted array. Even though none of the uh, of a reverse sorted array is sorted, it's really fast on it. So and the, isn't that isn't that one of the things that that's, that's kind of like quick sort, which is kind of the fastest sort, but does very badly if you happen to be completely resorted or reverse sorted initially, right? It depends on how you partition it. It can be if you if you pick the wrong partition. Yes, because my my understanding is that the way that the way that sort is implemented is basically quick sort, except if it turns out to be in this pathological situation, then we switch over to heap sort because heap sort, although right. not as efficient generally, has better worst time performance. Right, and that's actually a bug in the uh, libc++ sort is that it's not doing that switch to to heap sort when things go south. But oh. uh, the the probability that it's going going to go south is extremely low in the wild, but you can write a test to force it to do so. And I actually, that may have been fixed in the last four years. That was a bug in the library when I left four years ago. And I don't know whether okay. it's been fixed or not. Well, we need to drag Marshall on. and <laughs> <laughs> it, it should be a fairly easy bug to fix because you just, you know, heap sorts there in the algorithm in the library, and you just need to detect that you're, that you've recursed too, too deeply and, and switch and, you know, just bail out and call the other algorithm. So is this okay, what so they mean us. by intro sort, or is intro sort a different thing? Oh, intro sort, gosh. I, I think, think that is what intro sort is. Intro sort is starting with quick sort and switching to yes. heap sort when you detect the problem. I think I, you're I, right. That's my understanding of what that term means. Yeah, I believe you're right. I, I'd forgotten that. It's been too many years since I've been looking at sort. But if I, if I go back and describe what's going on, the libc++ sort is a quick sort. It's just a, a modified quick sort. Um, it does. Uh, it initially is doing either a uh, partition of three or a partition of five, depending on how big the array is. And uh, during the partitioning process, it counts how many times it it swaps elements. And if it if it does a partition and discovers that it it gets through the entire partition and hasn't swapped any elements, then it'll say, hmm maybe this is already sorted. And at that point, it'll do a, an insertion sort over that range. Now, the cool thing about his insertion sort is that if you insertion sort on an already sorted range, it's an order in process. It's very fast. Whereas uh, other algorithms are not so great on, on pre-sorted data. But it won't do an entire insertion sort. During the insertion sort, it'll count how many inserts it makes. And there's some heuristic in there about if it makes too many inserts during the insertion sort, it'll just bail halfway through the insertion sort and pop back out to the quick sort. And so you've got this thing that's 
occasionally trying an insertion sort on subranges. And if you're nearly sorted or already sorted, then then you can just that that part of the job is done and you never come back to it. Or you fail and you go back to the quick sort and it you know continues recursing down just like quick sort. Again, trying to detect as it gets to smaller and smaller ranges, you know, eventually you'll get down to, you know, very few elements that happen to be sorted and you then insertion sort them and yes, everything's fine and you pop back out. So what this does is, for example, imagine you had a, a reverse sorted range that you put into this algorithm. You go in and you partition it and you swap every single element in that reverse range. So you're just doing a normal quick sort. Then you subdivide and half, you apply quick sort to the first half and quick sort to the second half. Now, in this, in this instance, your first half and your second half are already sorted just because of the swapping that you did in the first partition. And so during this second stage phase, the libc++ is going to detect, oh, the first half is already sorted. So that's very quick. And then it's going to detect, detect again that the second half is already sorted. So you're only going to recurse down like two levels for reverse sorted range. So it, it gets executed very quickly. And that same reasoning applies to arbitrarily other patterns. Where it just finds it in the code. Yeah. And, and so, the, worst, the worst case scenario is actually a perfectly random sorted, a, a random randomized sequence where there are no patterns. Right. So... This is one of the questions I'd ask you with your hat on as a standard library developer. How do you, you have, you have to, because, because you're doing the standard library, you have to make no assumptions at all about the data you're given, right? So you, you can't say, well, you know, data tends to have runs of sorted data in it. Well, maybe in some applications, maybe in other applications not. I mean, I, I would say your premise isn't quite true. I, I have to... I have to assume that there's no patterns in there for a worst case, reasonably performing scenario. But I'm also allowed, and it's even to one's uh, an implementer's advantage to say, yeah, but in the real world, you're all, you know, often you're in case, in cases where you do have lots of patterns. For example, it's common to uh, sort a bunch of things and then do some more work and append some stuff to the end of it and then resort your entire range. And that's the sort of application that comes up all the time in the wild. And libc++ will do very well there because you've already got a big part of your thing that's already sorted. Okay. All right. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate a little detour into sorting here. <laughs> <I think laughs> Probably have... more than anybody ever wanted to know. <laughs> no, no. I think that I, I hope that the software engineers are fascinated by sorting. I just, I hope that. that, that I certainly that's am. true for me. I certainly yeah. am. Um, so we have um, we have some announcements, uh, conference announcements. Do you want to take? Because I think you have the biggest announcement, Phil. I believe so. It's uh, pretty big for me. <laughs> so last week, C plus plus on C, we opened the registrations for early bird tickets. That's still open till the end of the month. As of today, I have pushed out a um, a campaign where if you if you send out a tweet. Um, saying what what you'll be looking forward to in, in C++ on C, uh, you'll be entered into a draw for a free ticket. So all the details are on the, the current news page on the C, CPP on C.UK. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, that's going to run until next Friday. So 
I have to be a little bit careful here because I uh, judged on recent performance. This podcast may not be out before then, but I'm really going to try and get back on top of it uh, this time around. So hopefully I have at least a few days to get that in. Uh, for those All listening right. live, you may have an advantage there. Yes, get those tweets flying. Um, we have, uh, my news for CPVCon is that our hotel blocks are expiring literally within a few days. So if you have not booked your hotel, absolutely you want to do that right away. And the other news is not really news. I'm just teasing people. It looks like we are going to have a field trip. I was thinking we wouldn't have one this year because uh, we had plans for one and those plans fell through and there just wasn't time before registration to, to, to fix it. However, we have a few volunteers that said, we got to have a field trip. And so they've taken it upon themselves and I'm kind of excited at what they've gone. I never get to go on it because I'm always working to prepare the conference. But this one, uh, I really kind of want to go on, but that's because I'm a sucker for this. But anyway, um, so what else is going on? Uh, Pacific Plus Plus has just put up their schedule. Um, and so you can see what, what their talks are. Um, and let's see, uh, who, who are we missing? ADC still has tickets open. And meeting C++ and meeting and And meeting C++. Yeah, and they've uh, released their schedule, but I think they had already done that for yes. us. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So I think we're ready to tackle our main topic. And on this one, I think Arthur is the big troublemaker. Arthur, what what have you gotten us into here? <laughs> uh, well, it's something that's been tried a lot of times before, right? Um, uh, object relocation. Um so sort of, uh, we have malloc and free, and we have realloc in C. And then in C++, we have new and delete, and we don't have any sort of, you know, renew or realloc type thing um, in the language. And we also can't really get it uh, in the library, like in vector. If I have a vector of std strings, for example, and I want to uh, reallocate it, um, and take that whole array of strings and, and uh, put it somewhere else. Um, you know, in C++03, I had to actually make copies of all of them and, and then destroy the originals. And we've done better, um, thanks to people like Howard, in uh, C++11, you know, that now we can move all of them and then destroy the originals. But even that uh, is slower than it needs to be. Let me, let me stop you real quick right there. So the... This the uh, vector cannot be implemented using malloc and realloc because moving all the bytes, the values of all the bytes, which is what realloc will do, right? I mean, if I realloc ask for more memory, if it can't add the memory in place, which is the usual case, then it has to create a new buffer and move everything over. But because this is a C library, it's just going to move bytes. It doesn't know anything about constructors and destructors, right? So that's why we can't use realloc as an implementation in the library. Right. Well, that's, that's why the language says you can't use it, right? But we know, you and I know, that in fact, for std string, you could just move the bytes and it would actually work great, right? I mean, sure, you know, sure. it's just pointers or, or even with a small string optimization, it's just got the characters right there. Um, I and think std, uh, std string's not really unique in that situation. <laughs> not at all. Um, most uh, most things, uh, most not all things, um, and, and it's possible to implement a std string with the you know if you had a small string optimization where you had a pointer that sometimes pointed to the heap and then sometimes it pointed 
to within the object itself. Right. Then if you copied all the bytes to somewhere else, that pointer would now point, you know, into garbage. So any any object that that has a pointer into itself is a real problem for anything like this. And having a pointer into yourself is completely legal. Any object could in fact do that. That's right. So it would be really nice if things like Vector could do this, but they can't at the moment because they can't do it generally because there are objects with pointers into themselves. Um, libc++ is std function is an example of that. Uh, std function actually does do this small object optimization with a pointer into itself. And so if you move a std function from one place to the other, it's not going to work. Um, another com really common example would be std list, right? Because std list is sort of a big circular doubly length list and so it has a pointer coming into it from outside, from the tail of the list. There's a, there's a next pointer that goes to the list and a pre-pointer that, that comes back, right? Um, and so if you move a std list, then you break those incoming pointers, the point to garbage. Um, so there are... You mean the, the head and tail item are pointing into the, into the body of the, the list item? Right. You'd be able to iterate. If you iterated over this list, you would be able to get into the list just fine and go through all of the elements. And then the very last element, you'd take its next pointer and you wouldn't get the actual end of the list. You would get garbage. Right. Except on Visual Studio. Uh, oh, Visual, does Visual Studio do the, uh, the they, heap allocated? Yeah, they don't have the embedded node like GCC and, and libc++. Oh. Yeah, I, I have investigated libc++ very heavily. Uh, yeah. And a little bit of std C++ and not really at all with MSPC to see how they do the different STL containers. I haven't personally looked at the code. I get everything from rumor. It's the best source. But that's what makes the current situation so, uh, you know, frustrating, right? Is, is that we know that memcopy often does the right thing for a certain subset of, of types. But a large subset. Uh, yeah, but unfortunately, we can't even name them because you can't even say, like, well, it works for, you know, uh, list, right? If you're on MSBC, it does work for list. If you're on GC, if you're on, you know, libs did C++, it doesn't work for list. And so a, a portable program has no way of, you know, figuring this out. And if you look at uh, existing libraries like Folly and EASDL, um, Folly in particular, I've been looking at recently, uh, it has this concept that uses it in FB vector. Um, and it basically has an invariant that you're not allowed to put anything into the vector that doesn't work this way because they just unconditionally memcopy things. Oh, wow. Uh, Folly, Folly is Facebook's uh, library, which they've now open sourced. Right. Um, and so if you're going to put anything into an FB vector, you have to warrant to the vector class that, yes, this thing is trivially locatable. Um, or they, they just, I think they call it just relocatable. But um, so that means you can't have an FB vector of things like std string by default. Um, now it turns out you can, right? Because that would be horrible if you couldn't put a string in a vector. You know? um, so what they do is they have a hard coded list of, you know, here are the types that the implementers have decided are relocatable. Um, and they just have a big whitelist of like std string, that's okay. You know, std you know, vector, that's okay. Uh, unique footer, that's okay. And they just go down the, this whitelist. Um, and the problem is that... Uh, is that enforced at compile time? Is that what they do? What's that? I said, is that enforced at compile time? 
Um, yes. Yeah, and then it will static assert if you try to put something in that isn't on the whitelist and isn't trivially copyable. And you have ways you can add things to the whitelist yourself. You can, see, you can warrant that you're, you're, you just make a specialization of a, of a template, of a type trait to say, I guarantee that my thing is going to be okay. Um, but the problem is someone has to go make that whitelist. Someone has to say, you know what, std string is okay. And it turns out, well, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Right? Or, you know, they had on their std list is okay. And no, it's not. Um, you know, I guess on MSVC it would be, and then on, on GCC it wouldn't be. Um, and so maintaining that, that list of what types are safe and what types aren't is quite burdensome and, and quite a source of bugs. But worth it because of the performance we get, right? I mean, there's, right. this is a non-trivial performance impact to be yes. able to do this. Um, you've done some benchmarking along that lines, right? Uh, yeah, my uh, C++ Now talk uh, from uh, C++ Now 2018, um, I gave a talk called uh, The Best Type Traits C++ Doesn't Have. And I talked about uh, three different things, but the, uh, the first one that I talked about was, was this concept of, uh, you know, just, just having some sort of type trait that you could ask, uh, is this type safe in this way? Um, which you're and, calling trivially relocatable. Which I'm calling trivially relocatable. Uh, I watched that talk last night. Very nice job. Thank you. And it had, of course, very impressive benchmarks. But, of course, that's because I was benchmarking things like, you know, the time it takes to resize a vector, right? Ignoring all of, you know, ignoring all of the actual putting things in the vector and what else you're doing. I remember Howard once telling me that the wonderful thing about move semantics is that you can create, uh, you can create benchmarks of any arbitrary performance speed up that you want. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Just make it nastier and it'll go faster. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Um, but after giving that talk, you know, that talk was really focused on the vector resizing um, application. Um, and you might say, well, no, I don't normally uh, just resize my vectors, right? I only do that geometrically often, right? Because, uh, you know, not very often in a, in a big program. Um, but I'm really, I'm doing a lot of inserting. I'm, I'm sorting, right? Um, we were just talking about sorting. Um, but it turns out that this could actually speed up sorting as well, right? Because what is sorting? It's a bunch of swaps. Right. Right. And so if I make swap faster, right. then I can make this faster. And, and so in the standard library, um, basically every STL container, every unique footer, all that always has to overload swap. They have to provide a, a swap function because the default swap, the template, uh, the, the unconstrained template would not be very fast because it would have to do a move construct and a move assign, a move assign, and a destroy. Or, yeah, and a destroy the temporary. Um, so, so, in other words, every time we do a move, in a, in a classic situation where we have a pointer to something that we own, which is where move makes sense, right? Because now, instead of copying a buffer, we're just going to copy the move, the, the pointer. However, what we have to do is we have to go to the source and we have to zero out the source pointer because its destructor will be called. And when it is, it's going to wipe out the buffer that we've, that we've taken ownership of with our move. And what you're pointing out is that we're doing two things there. One is we're setting that pointer to zero. And the only reason we're setting the pointer to zero is so that when the destructor is called, it doesn't delete that allocation. And so if we could somehow tell the compiler, 
don't bother setting the pointer to zero, and then don't bother running the destructor. Then we have a double win, right? We, the, setting the pointer to zero is work, and running the destructor is work. If we could not do both, not do either of them, then all we need to do is move a bunch of bytes, which we have memcopy, which does that really nicely. And you don't have to go back and touch it again. So if you're doing this over a whole right. array of things, as Vector does, uh, you might even get some cache benefits from not having to go back and touch everything the second time. Okay. Okay. So how, so this is a cool idea. How do we solve it? Um, what do we do? Well, so I have this paper um, that I've been working on um, that I hope will get presented at San Diego, although I won't be there, so I'm looking for a shepherd. Um and uh, the paper number is uh, P1144. Um, it's not in a publication yet. It will be in the, the pre-meeting mailing. Um, but the, the we, idea we, is... We have a link to your blog post where you reference a draft of the paper. And we yes, have that in the um, And the current draft is also sort of publicly available. It, it's on my website. It's pretty easy to find. But yeah, the blog post links to a snapshot uh, in time of what the draft was when the blog post was announced. Um, and uh, basically it has, I guess, at least two parts, maybe three or four parts. Um, so it starts with the concept of, of trivially relocatable, right? And that, that's the property that we're trying to get at, this idea that you can then copy it around in vector and it's okay. Um, and that's the thing that's kind of fuzzy to define, but we understand intuitively what we're trying to get at, at least. And we can put rules that the compiler can use, in, inductive rules, to, uh, to say, well, if unique putter has this property, then if I have a struct containing nothing but a unique putter, you know, and, and a defaulted move uh, constructor and a defaulted destructor, then it has that property. And if it has you know, three strings and an int, uh, and a defaulted move constructor and a defaulted destructor, then it has this property, and, and so on. If it follows the rule of zero. If it follows the rule of zero, yeah. And all of the types are trivially relocatable, then the object itself is trivially relocatable. Right. If the bases and members have this property and you follow the rule of zero, then you have this property and so on recursively. Unless um, one of those pointers points to itself. Um, unless one of the pointers points to <laughs> unless itself. Unless you've got a self-referencing self object. But then... Either you're not following the rule of zero, mm. right? You know, you have you preserve that class invariant somehow in your constructor, or else it's not really an invariant. And, and in that case, sure, it's okay. We're preserving the value of the pointer by by doing sure. the memcopy, regardless yeah. of where it points. We preserve the pointer's value. If you have some other invariant, you would write a constructor, right? Right. Yeah. And as soon as you do that, we we stop assuming. Um, now you might say, well, unique putter has. Uh, a move constructor and a destructor. So by this logic, unique putter would not be trivially relocatable, right? Um, so for that, uh, the paper proposes, although it admits that there might be other ways of doing this, um, but I think by far and away the cleanest way of doing this is to add an attribute. So there's an attribute that you can put on the class uh, to say, uh, you know, class trivially relocatable unique putter. And that's a guarantee, that's a warrant to the compiler telling it, I guarantee that even though I, I've put some special member functions here, um, I, I assure you I have done the, the work to make sure that it is, in fact, trivially relocatable. 
And so unique footer in libc++ or, or in the library would have that attribute on it. Um, and so it would magically become trivially locatable from the compiler's point of view. And so um, uh, an attribute which were introduced in 11, um, syntactically, it's some, it's some tag that's within a double set of, of square brackets. And the semantic of it is it's some type of optimization, which in fact the compiler can ignore. It can't change the actual meaning of the program. Yes, yeah, so I have a blog post right. about this too. The ignore oh. attributes rule. Um, uh, and it's, it's very hard to define what we mean by cannot affect the behavior of the, the program, right? I mean, one of the uh, comments on Reddit after I did the blog post was, was uh, someone said, well, you know, if, if you can test for it, if there's a type trait that lets you test whether the attribute is there or not, then in what sense is it ignorable, right? You can certainly write a program that has different behavior depending on whether the attribute is there or not. But in the same way, we've got things coming like no unique address that you can put on a member to say, I don't care about this member's address. It's okay to have it overlap something else, right, which would replace the empty base optimization. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, you know, you take the size of, right, and you can observe, you know, size of is four on this platform and it's eight on that platform because it doesn't respect this attribute. Um, you know, or, or uh, the, even just the, something as simple as the call through attribute. It's, it's right? not really a question of whether or not the program can ignore it. It's a question of whether the compiler can ignore it. In other words, a compiler can ignore an attribute. If it generates code as if that attribute wasn't there, that has to be valid code. Well, but anything that affects the, the sizes of a type or the properties of the type in any way that's observable by type traits could change my spin a behavior. It could change. I could have a static assert that fails and it doesn't generate code, right? And we're we're definitely in that world already. I mean, some people are not, you know, comfortable with that idea. But you know, attributes do have effects of some sort. Now, I agree. You shouldn't write an attribute that's like you know, this attribute. You put it on a variable and it adds one to it, or something. You know, an increment attribute, like. Right there's there's some line that we we shouldn't cross, but I, I strongly believe that this is not on the wrong side of that line. Right. Okay. So essentially, we add this attribute, and we are telling the compiler for this particular object, it is safe when moving it instead of calling the uh, move assignment followed by a destructor to just call mem copy. And when, when relocating, you said when moving it, but when relocating. Which we define where the definition of relocate is a move followed by a destroy of the original. Right. Followed immediately. Right. They they really have to very very tightly very yes. tightly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, this is not something that the compiler would go do on its own because it says, "Oh, I see you're moving out of this," and then later you destroy it. I'm just gonna, you know, replace that whole thing. If there's side effects happening in between, then obviously we shouldn't you know we shouldn't do it. This is not something that the compiler is going to necessarily replace. This is something that a library implementer like uh, Bali Vector uh, or Lib C++ Vector even, you know, could, if this were standard, it could take advantage of it. Um, well, you, you, have, you have an implementation, a proof of concept implementation that does exactly that. Yes, I do. Would you like to tell people where it is? <laughs> well, um, go ahead. You've, you've explained that in the, in the blog. In the blog post, the... the, the yeah. uh, um, there is uh, Matt Godbolt's Compiler Explorer, um, a.k.a. Godbolt, you know, um, 
has a whole bunch of compilers that you can run online and, and test. And, and everyone listening to this podcast already knows that. But one of these compilers, um, as of uh, a month or two ago, uh, is called Experimental P1144. Um, and it's a, a branch of what a Clang name. Um, that I maintain, um, such as it is. Um, and it also has a branch of libc++ um, that it uses instead of the standard libc++. And in this branch of the library, uh, I've got the type traits. You know, std is trivially relocatable um, and is no throw relocatable and so on. I've got a new uh, standard algorithm called std uninitialized relocate that actually performs this operation. So it's sort of a combination of uninitialized move and destroy together. Um, and again, it has better cache effects, right? Because it only does one pass instead of two passes. Um, and then in all of the containers and all of the algorithms, uh, it has an optimized swap um, that says if the T, whatever I'm swapping, uh, if it's trivially relocatable, I don't have to do move, 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 destroy. I can actually do memcopy, 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 and it will... And, and of course, the test itself is also done at compile time. Um, right, and this is all done through um, constraints through Spina. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, and and what kind of numbers did you get from uh, from your benchmarking? I mean, what are, what are we looking at? Um, well, from the benchmark I presented in Aspen at, at C++ now, that was benchmarking uh, vector reserve. Um, so basically, I made a big vector of like 10,000 elements. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, reserved exactly 10,000 elements, put 10,000 elements in it, and then resized it to 10,001. So that caused a reallocation. Um, and by doing this uh, optimization, we saw basically a 3x speed up in that vector resize. Right. And that's already in a situation where it's doing moves. Yes. That's on top. That's not, a, that's not on top of a C++ 98. That's on top of a a move-enabled solution. Right. Now, the caveat there, of course, is that you really only do this resizing of a vector geometrically infrequently. Um, but let's say, now this is a, now, now you might say, what about my, uh, now that I've done the, the libc++ patch, uh, what do my benchmarks look like? And the answer is I haven't run any lately. Um, but one that would, I, I think, be very interesting to run would be a sort of uh, a big array of uh, trivially relocatable types with maybe some unique letters in them, um, where uh, sort does a whole lot of swapping. And swapping can be done in this optimized way by memcopy. Um, and so doing a whole bunch of them uh, should give really good benchmark numbers. And I wish I had them today. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you made reference to this earlier, but Howard is essentially the architect or perhaps one of the architects of move semantics. So, Howard, what do you think of this idea of trivially relocatable as this optimization? It's about time. What took you so long? We've been waiting for this for a long time, you know. No, in, in, the, uh, in the original move paper way back in 2002, so... I remember reading We're that. 20 years ago, uh, I talked about something called uh, destructive move semantics and how, you know, even back then we realized that this was something that a lot of people need to do 
we knew that Vector could make use of it uh, during the uh, the buffer reallocation. We just we didn't have a good way to solve it. And and what Arthur has done is say, okay, maybe we don't have a general solution for all object types, but for those where you can replace the destructive move with just a mem copy, here's how to do it. And I think I think this is a a really nice way to carve out. Uh, another significant performance enhancement. And I just want to throw in there, as long as we're crediting uh, the, the pioneers of this, that uh, this is this paper is not based on Pablo Halpern's destructive move papers. Um, but if you go back and, and read his papers, which I did after I had already started, you know, writing out this one, um, it's almost identical. I mean, the, the the idea of we need an operation with a name and we need an algorithm that performs it, and we need a type trait that detects the possibility of performing it. You know, he called it destructive move, and he had stid is destructive movable and uninitialized destructive move. And, you, know, um, you know, and I just use the word relocatable instead because that's what Folly and the ASTL do. Um, but, you know, he tried, and he failed because we don't have it. And I think it was related to the object lifetime issues, which I have not really solved either. But I'm, I'm trying to separate it cleanly from this idea of, of you know, there's going to have to be some sort of magic that lets us get away with skipping the constructor and skipping the destructor. And I don't want to propose that magic myself. I want to leave that to, to someone else. I think you may be better off not proposing it because we, we already have... Uh, what's it called? Placement destructor, you know, where you destruct stuff manually. We already have that. And it's existing practice that you can't use that on, on scoped objects, on stack objects. So trivially relocating something is just the same thing as, you know, it's the, the exact same restrictions. You can only use it in places where you might be able to use a manual destructor call. Well, if you're going through the algorithm, through the uninitialized relocate algorithm, then... Mm -hmm. I think I agree with you. Yeah. Um, but uh, there are libraries like Folly that just do a strict mem copy, uh, which is totally undefined behavior. But I mean, it works, but it's undefined behavior. And this paper does not make that any less undefined behavior. No. But it really helps them with the type trait to detect when when it will be okay to do it, even though it's undefined. It's well, really hard to talk about this. <laughs> stuff, right, right, but... It, I imagine I haven't looked at Folly, but I imagine they're mem copying from one dynamically allocated buffer to another. Yes, and so that is the exact scenario where if you weren't mem copying, you'd be going in and manually calling destruct on each member of that uh, dynamically allocated array. That's what right. Vector does today. You'd also do a uh, you'd also do a move construct to to create the other one. Right. So you move so, construct uh, followed by destruct. Right, and but you would actually be calling the constructor and destruct. So the object lifetime would be, yes. you know, there is a constructor call, there is a destructor call, and so what Arthur's saying is we're cheating here because we are we are creating objects without calling their constructor, and we're destroying objects without calling their destructor. And absolutely, my my only point is we don't have to involve the compiler because the compiler is not involved in the first in the original problem. But, the, the but aren't there situations not... where that's what we're doing, essentially, is telling the compiler, you can do this? We're telling the compiler, you don't need to call the destructor. I've told you that this is a 
We're not telling the compiler, John. We're, um, we're telling the library, really. This is, this is a purely library um, optimization. The compiler understands how to do this inductive propagating of, you know, when you inherit from, you inherit, you know. But um, as far as who's going to use, you know, inside vector, inside swap, these are all library things doing this. They will so, have so, so, so in other words, if, if I were doing a move, say let's say I'm returning something from a function, the compiler is not going to take advantage of this particular optimization itself. Um, my paper does not propose that the compiler take advantage of it at all. Um, now, it could. It, it seems kind of tempting to say, you know, that's exactly the sort of situation where you're doing a move and a destroy. Um, and it's true I guess that... I'm jumping ahead. I was assuming that's exactly what we were doing. I mean, I understand you're saying that for things like vector resize or, or pushback, that, that that's that you're allowing the, the library to do that. But I also assumed, well, the compiler's going to take advantage of this too. But you're saying we don't actually, we don't need that. We get a lot of benefit. We get a lot of bang for this even without the compiler doing that. We definitely got a lot of bang for our buck without uh, doing that. Um, and the main reason that I haven't um, really pursued doing that is because, uh, you know, I really think that this needs an implementation, you know, like the one on Godbolt where people can play around with it. Um, and I am qualified to write the implementation that I have written. <laughs> I am definitely not qualified to try to, to say, you know, when you return a, a value from a function, you know, to, to go into Clang and find, you know, where it does the, the move initialization and change that to do, you know, so I don't even know right? what that looks like. You want users to, to play with the proposal before we actually standardize it? That's, that's <laughs> yeah. um, they, they can play with the camel's nose. They can play with the whole camel. They, you know, whatever they want to do. Yeah. Now, I think this is a great approach. I mean, part of the reason we didn't do destructive move, to, you know, twenty years ago is because it would have just been too much. Uh, you you get something standardized so that future developers and and researchers can build upon your work as opposed to do the whole enchilada all at once. Sure. Try to do the whole thing at once, and it just collapses under its own weight. Never never makes forward progress. Well, you also terrify people because you're trying to buy it off to you. Exactly. You can say, this is all Absolutely. we're doing. Which is kind of what Arthur's doing, saying, well, we're not having the compiler will do that. We're just saying it's okay for the library to do that. Absolutely. But actually, from my point of view, that's actually kind of scarier because if the compiler's doing it, the compiler's allowed to do basically whatever it wants to do. If the library is doing it, then we actually do have to think about, well, what are we saying about object lifetimes if we're saying, well, eh, it's not... Well, this is where you come in, John. After after Arthur gets this standardized, you take the next step. You carry the torch. <laughs> now, I will point out that in my current wording, I mean, the, the wording is very fuzzy. And I, I don't mean that it's bad wording. I just mean that it's very fuzzy wording. Because the, the, stand, the C++ standard doesn't really talk about the compiler and the library as separate entities, right? It talks about the implementation. And so what... The wording currently says in, in my proposal is just uh, when a type is trivially locatable, the implementation can take the uh, the move and destroy, uh, can take the relocation operations wherever they exist and replace them with memcopy. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it has that latitude. It, does, it doesn't say that it has to do it. It's not guaranteed to do it. 
And that means that this would not break any existing implementations, right? The fact that libc++ vector today doesn't do it, doesn't break anything, it's still conforming. Uh, the fact that std function is not uh, trivially locatable doesn't break anything. It's not required to be trivially locatable. And now there's a type trait you can test, you know, whether to see whether it is or not. Um, but this means that I guess technically, you know, that the compiler could uh, replace a, uh, a return of a unique footer, you know, with a, a mem copy or something like that without actually running the new constructor and the destructor. But the thing is, it already does that, right? I mean, under the as-if rule, you can already do that. Well, it, if, if the compiler has, if you'll pardon me, unique knowledge about unique pointer, right? I mean, it has to know something about it. Now, if everything's in line, which of course unique pointer is, then I guess it can probably deduce that. But it's not doing it because it sees, oh, here's this type that has this behavior. It's doing it because it's looking at what it's actually going to generate and optimizing that away. Right. It would be, um, it would be tough for a compiler to do it because it's saying, oh, here's a non-trivial member function and here's another non-trivial function. And it's got to realize that the combination of those is trivial. Well, I think in the case of returning... Yeah, with returning a single unique footer by value, I think compilers generally do do that. I mean, they don't, gen you know, compilers generally will generate perfect code today for returning a single object. But as I showed in my C++ Now talk, you know, if they generated perfect code for vector resizing of unique footers, my benchmark would not have showed a 3x speedup, right? Yeah. So I am focusing on the library stuff also, because I think that's where the benefit lies. Um, but I don't know because I haven't done the implementation of, because I'm not qualified to do the implementation of the, uh, the return or, or wherever else you could put this in. Yeah. Plus, you're, you're competing with uh, uh, co copy and move Elijah uh, with the return statement where we're already wow. doing you know, pretty good, especially with Richard's latest work in, in 17. It's, you know, it's very nice. And as you know, I have another paper coming, uh, fixing it even further. Get rid of ah. some more copies. Uh, what paper is that? But, uh, that's uh, P1155, More Implicit Moves. Um, and it's closely related to another paper by David Stone, whose number I don't know. Um, oh, right. You don't have all the paper numbers memorized? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'd, I'd already forgotten. You you taught me something new about the language just a couple of nights ago. I didn't realize. Yes. Yep. Thank you again. There, there are all sorts of, uh, of cases. This is where you say uh, return, you know, X semicolon. So it's just return and the name of a variable. Um, we've sort of trained ourselves, especially, um, especially in 17, but even, you know, in 11, uh, we sort of trained ourselves to think of that as copy elision. And even when it's not copy elision, at least it will be cheap because it will do a move. Um, and so what my 1155 uh, does is it identifies four cases, um, which are relatively common, uh, where the move doesn't happen and actually makes a copy. Um, and says, why don't we just not do that? Why don't we do the move? Talking of uh, proposals, uh, how does your... Um Trivially relocatable proposal relate to Noel Douglas's move relocates. That's P1029 for those keeping score. Uh, well, it competes with it. Um, it, 
one of them will for- forestall the other, I think. I mean, um, Niall is interested in this relocation thing more for that aspect we were just talking about of not just the compiler being able to uh, um, optimize uh, when you say return, you know, maybe it will, it will do a memcopy instead. But if I have a small type that is trivially relocatable, such as unique footer or exception footer, or a struct containing an exception footer, which is why Niall's interested in it, um, then not only can I relocate it around via memcopy, but he's saying, well, if it fits in a register, why don't I just put it in a register? And I return an exception footer in a register. Um, and my 1144 trivially locatable does not do that at all. It does not change ABI on purpose because that would break the world. Um, and, uh, but he's particularly interested in it for that reason, because it relates to this, uh, error handling, uh, the, the, uh, the static exceptions or for exceptions, uh, that Herb Sutter and Niall are working on, that they need, a some way of, of returning non-trivial objects in registers. And it turns out that the uh, conditions under which this is somewhat safe are almost the same as the conditions for trivial relocatable. All right. So I, I can't keep both of these in my head at the same time. So I'm going to ask you to steer me through this. Is your proposal going to make what they're trying to do harder? Or, I mean, you're saying that one is likely to forestall the other, but why can they not be merged in some way? I mean, I understand you're trying to stay away from the ABI and ABI change, and they want the ABI change. But um, is this really an either or, or is there a way to steer a steer something that we, we can have what we want? Both proposals as they stand at the moment are propo- they're proposing very similar things, and they're both proposing to add an attribute um, with different names, right? So we if we, we couldn't take them both in their current form because we'd end up with, you know, you'd, you'd be marking your class as trivially locatable and also as you relocate. And, and, you know, we, we, I want to try to minimize the number of concepts if possible. And I'm, I'm doing that by throwing all of Niles' concepts out, right? Uh, <laughs> well, that's one approach. Um, but uh, for the ABI issue, um, his, the, the things he wants out of the ABI to be able to pass things in registers are actually very close to something that's, that already exists today in Clang. Uh, Clang has a vendor-specific attribute called Trivial ABI, um, which relates to the Itanium ABI and makes types sort of appear to the ABI to be trivially copyable, which means they can be passed in registers, even though they're not. And so the compiler takes responsibility for still calling the new constructor and calling the destructor at appropriate times for the copy constructor. Um, but it changes the ABI so that instead of being passed on the stack, these objects are actually passed in registers, so they haven't got an address. Um, and so if you and I have a blog post also on Trivial ABI, or Trivial ABI 101, um, that shows some example code gen of what that looks like. And obviously from the name, that changes the ABI. You couldn't put this on, you know, unique footer and then you know compile and link your code with a, a shared object that used the old ABI. It wouldn't work. But you could put this on your own types. Um, and then you could pass them in registers. 
so this never occurred to me before, but I guess I guess I'm figuring out that what you're skirting around because you're assuming I already understand it, which I didn't, but now maybe I do. If something's in a register, you can't call a member function on that because it, because a member function has to have a this pointer and the register doesn't have an address. Um, so exactly. the compiler could generate a completely different version of of the function for use in situations where the object was in a register. But, but that, that seems... That's not really what it does. It doesn't really generate a different version of the function. What it does is it... What it would do in that case, like, and, and you'll see this inside the body of a, uh, of a function. You know, if, if I have a local variable of type unique footer, um, you know, that, that can totally go in a register, right? The, the compiler does not make a stack frame for every unique footer in my program because it can see, it can do all of the as-if optimizations and it knows exactly what's going on. But when it, as soon as you cross the function boundary, it has to spill that unique pointer into somewhere that everyone agrees that, uh, you know, when the constructor of that object is called, uh, it gets some this pointer, and when the destructor is called, it gets some this pointer, and those need to match. Like, by definition, it's the same object. It has to have the same address. Uh, so Trivial ABI basically gets rid of that constraint and says, you know what, it's okay if, you know, you construct the object over here, and then after it's been constructed, we're going to stick it in a register and we're going to move it around. And then later we're going to need to destruct it. So we need to call its destructor and we need to give it at this pointer. So what we're going to do is we're going to store it to the stack over here, which might be a totally different address. And we're going to call the destructor with that this pointer. And because it has been marked with this attribute, the user is warranting to the compiler that this is okay. You know, constructing and destructing with different this pointers is okay. Uh, and of course, that's not always okay. But with the attribute, we're telling the compiler it is. And that's not exactly the same thing you're saying, because all you're saying is that if you are trying to do a relocate, which is a move followed by a destruction, then that can be implemented by just moving the bytes. So it's related. It's not exactly the same thing. I would say it's, I mean, it, it's real, everything's related. Uh, <laughs> uh, everything in the universe uh, is one, right? But, but is it trivially related? <laughs> no, it is non-trivially related. Um, because in the, in the context of the relocation operation from my paper, that operation has a source and a destination, right? And they are different places. And we're taking something from the source that we constructed at the source, and we're going to do something tantamount to a move construct, which gets a source and a destination, followed by a destroy of the source, and then later we're going to destroy the destination. Um, and all we're doing is getting rid of that construct and that destroy and placing that with the copy. But we still have the two ends being the same, that we constructed the source object, and we're destroying the destination object, and they are different objects. It's totally fine for them to have different dispointers, the different objects. Does that make sense? Right, but what he's wanting to do... What he's wanting to do is kind of have the source object over here, and then later have the source object over here. Right. Uh, that, that's very different from having a destination object. And there's no particular operation in the code that does that. It's just that the compiler wants to do that for right. some optimization purpose. It wants to stick it in a register and yeah. then spill it back to the stack at some point. Yes. Is there any situation where that would not be safe to do 
for a type that is trivially relocatable? Um, I don't think so. I think I think it would always be safe by definition. Um, but it's a very different sort of model. It is oh, an arrow, but it seems pretty related to me. <laughs> well, it's, more, it's related. More than in really related. So that operation is safe, that, that you can take this object and sort of relocate it around. Um, but the use, the practical use that you would make of that is to change the ABI of functions that return objects of this type, right? So, so they what you're saying is want to apply your attribute to existing types. Right. My thing, you could pop it in and wouldn't change ABI at all. So if there's a way of having your attribute with a refinement, maybe a, the, the parameter to that attribute that also gives you the ABI change, would that be a way to merge the two proposals potentially? Yes. Although, you know, what I, the point of my bringing up the, the existing trivial ABI attribute is that it effectively is that orthogonal piece, right? In fact, today, you can mark things as trivial ABI without trivially relocatable. And that means the compiler can return them in registers, but vector and swap and so on won't actually do the, the memcopy optimization. I'm not sure why you want that. I was going to say, that. is there any value in that, or is that just because it happens to have been defined that way? Um, it would let you do things like if you really wanted to instrument your move constructor and your destructor, so like, you know, printf, you know, printf I'm being move constructed, printf I'm being destructed, right? Which we all have done, right? <laughs> Trivial ABI would not uh, remove any of those printfs. It would have to do all of those printfs because Trivial ABI is not about skipping construction and destruction. It's just about the ABI change. And whereas Trivial Relocation is all about skipping constructors and destructors, um, but no ABI change. And so we already, basically, if you go play with my Compiler Explorer uh, patch, you can actually try combining those two and, and see uh, uh, how they work together or, or, or thought of what. Um, right. So two, two possible ways forward to, to not lose the benefit of, of what Niall's going for is to have, have a refinement on, on your attribute that allows you to additionally specify the ABI change or have it a completely orthogonal concept, which doesn't include the, the actual moving part. Is that right. where we're at? And that, that second approach, you know, Clang does that in practice because they already have that attribute. Right. Um, right. Now, GCC doesn't have that attribute, uh, as far as I know. I don't know if they're working on it. It also doesn't have your experimental implementation. Yes, and Clang Trunk doesn't have my experimental implementation either. It is a it's a branch, and I I hope it gets merged. I've I've, I've made a, a pull request for it, and it's gotten very good feedback. It, it got a lot better uh, thanks to Nicholas Lesser uh, gave some really good feedback. Um, made it a lot shorter, um, but I'm I'm not terribly hopeful of it getting into Trunk unless the proposal starts making progress and it starts looking like okay, to be standard conforming. We need to have this in Trunk. That would be cool. Um. So I had one other uh, topic uh, related to relocation that I wanted to make sure that we covered because I think it's important to publicize. Um, and that is the relationship between uh, the, this relocation concept and uh, persistence or uh, sharing, uh, as you see in boost interprocess. 
Because a lot of people, I think, when they hear about this trivially relocatable concept, think that it's going to help with sharing between processes. And I, I want to squash that. <laughs> so uh, the, the use case that a lot of people have, um, especially if you're, if you're in the audience for a lot of Bob Stiegel's talks uh, on uh, fancy pointers, you know, the, the use case is often that you have two processes running, uh, maybe like a producer and a consumer or something, and, and they're sharing a chunk of memory between them in a, in a shared memory block, which, of course, you know, standard C++ doesn't know anything about. Um, and you want to be able to have non-trivial data structures in that shared memory. Um, but the base address of that memory could be different in process A and process B. So process A sees the chunk of memory starting at 0x1000, and the other one sees it starting at 2000, right? Um, and so that means that you can't put pointers, native pointers, into that memory block. But you can't put a vector in that memory block uh, because its pointer would have to be like, you know, 1017, which would work fine in the in process A, but in process B, it would follow that pointer 1017 and it would point outside the block because the base address in, in process B was a 2000. Does that make sense so far? Makes sense to me. Well, what you're, what you're saying is that the heap allocation addresses on the two of the two processes are going to be different. The addresses are going to be different, right? I mean, if vector says I want to allocate a chunk of memory, it, it depends on what process it's running in, what its pointer value pointing to that chunk of memory is going to be. Right. Even if even if the allocation is done from a heap that lives in the shared memory, right. the addresses of the shared memory look different to the two different yeah. sides. Um, and so, boost in a process has a very uh, you know very mature way of, of dealing with this, which is they have this thing called offset footer that behaves just like a native pointer, but it's actually uh, represented internally as an integer. It, it, in its body, it holds an integer. And every time you call operator star on it, you know, that's an overloaded operator that goes and takes the address of the offset putter and adds the offset, adds that integer to it, and sort of jumps up to where it was pointing to. And that operation works the same, whether you're in process A, when the pointer is at, you know, 1,000, then you add 17 and you get 1,017, or if you're in process B, and the pointer, this pointer is actually 2,000, but you add 17, you get 2,017, that's what you wanted. So it's a way of sharing um, a single data structure that appears simultaneously to have two different addresses depending on who's looking at it. And uh, similarly, even in one process, you could say, I have this chunk of memory holding a, you know, an interprocess vector, um, using these offset butters, and everything is inside this one uh, region of memory. And then I can serialize this whole thing down to disk and bring it all back at some other offset, or just memcopy it from one offset to the other, or use realloc to, to wormhole it from one offset to the other. And then I can use it over here at that new base address, and it will still work great. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yep. Feels like I want to standardize this this point offset pointer concept, but call it a Schrodinger pointer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a relative pointer, yeah. 
And so people who are working in that space, um, which also includes people who are working on uh, heterogeneous computing, you know, if you're, if you're moving stuff between a CPU and a GPU or sharing stuff between a CPU and a GPU, I think a lot of them hear about this trivially relocatable idea and they say, oh, it's safe to memcopy it. Right? It's safe to memcopy it from one place to the other. So I could, you know, use this to get stuff from a CPU to a GPU by memcopying. Or I could use this to share, you know, between two processes or something like that. And unfortunately, that is not true, right? Because our canonical example of a relocatable type, a trivially relocatable type, was something like, you know, std vector with the default allocator. Because it's just a pointer and a couple of integers and, and I can move it around. But, of course, if I try to do, that's our canonical example of something you can't share between two processes, or you can't uh, just serialize its contents to disk and read them back later and expect to have a, a working vector, right? So there's this other concept that these people want, um, and I have no theory to really explain how to get what they want, mm-hmm. but trivially relocatable does not help with those scenarios. All right. Well, we will be watching with interest to see what kind of excitement happens in San Diego relative to this this proposal. You do have someone who's going to be looking at it, or you're looking for someone uh, to be a shepherd. You said, but is there? You know, is it? What's the state? Uh, well, I'm not going to be there because I'm going to be uh, in New York. Um, but uh, yeah, if if. Someone out there in, in Radio Land um, is interested in uh, contributing to uh, or benchmarking or shepherding, especially at, at San Diego, this paper. Um, please send me an email or get in touch uh, on Slack or something like that, because um, this paper can definitely use all the help it can get. Um, I, I hear that San Diego is officially the last uh, meeting where sort of feature changes are, are going to be considered, uh, which I'm, I find that real hard to believe, given that there's huge swaths of stuff that isn't in, in the, the draft yet. But um, if that's true, then the stakes are high, and I am not going to be there. <laughs> so, it's likely to be a bloodbath. So if people think this is a good idea, um, some, someone should help me out. Who wants to relocate in San Diego? There you go. All right. Well, our time has slipped away from us. Uh, I've enjoyed this a lot. I always enjoy talking to both of you because we're both in the Bay Area. I get to talk to Arthur every once in a while. I don't get to talk to Howard very much, but that's always a delightful treat. Um, And I've got so many things I want to talk to both of you about. Um, I wanted to ask, well... Uh, I, I just I won't even ask the question because then we'll go down that. So we need to stop. Um, is there is there anything else that we need to say before we wish everybody safe coding, Phil? Not that I can think of. I think we covered the important points from my perspective. Okay. All right, um, Howard. Did you have anything you wanted to say before we sign off? Uh, sure. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great. Always great. And Arthur, other than your plea for a shepherd. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, West Cons, that, that's all. <laughs> oh, it hurts so, <laughs> so much. We hate it. <laughs> if we'd known before, we invited him on. 
I think Niall's proposal is sounding better and better every moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, please join me in wishing all our viewers and uh, listeners uh, safe coding. So, everybody, until our next episode, safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding.